and welcome to this week's episode of the Social Review Podcast. As Parliament winds down for recess, we find ourselves running a little bit dry on content while we wait for some interviews to come in. So this week we're answering your questions in a segment we've come up completely on our own. Not copied it from anyone whatsoever. Is it, is it, is it called like... Ask us come ask come asks come from you or something. Asking would, me, asking you. Asking me, asking you. Asking you, right? Okay. And I'm, I'm joined today. I uh, did. I did comment the other day on Twitter that we are essentially the Aldi brand new statesman. Yeah, we've got. You the accidentally middle. said new socialist, which. Well, <laughs> oh, 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 did I? Oh, yes. well, that's <laughs> not what I intended. We are truly the the middle aisle of 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 Aldi when it comes to uh, online politics publications anyway this week i'm joined by kieran hello i'm at kieran mcgurdy on twitter lines hey up i'm at that interlace on twitter and julia hi i'm julia blanc i'm at julia blanc one on twitter one day i'm gonna get at julia blanc so i can do this in one take so we've had some questions in from our lovely listeners you can submit questions by just adding us on twitter at sock review pod emailing us at sock review pod at gmail.com or submitting an answer on the Google form that we put below every podcast that you'll see on Twitter. So the first question comes from um, a couple of weeks back, and it talks. it's mainly about progressive patriotism, I would guess. And obviously, we've had a World Cup now, not a World Cup, I know nothing about football, clearly. We've had a Euros competition where the English national side have been overtly political, and they've been overtly progressive. And at the same time, they haven't been eschewing the patriotic element of playing for the England national team. And the question basically goes, does the success of the England football team in advocating progressive English patriotism demonstrate that the left can win the cultural war by embedding themselves within established national institutions or is the key you know personalities so guys um any thoughts on that to say I don't really know much about football I did sort of watch the last few games but I'm not really a, I'm not really a football fan but I kind of got swept up into it right which is a kind of interesting thing I mean I'm not naturally a uh my parents from the Alaman so I I sort of have a weird I'm relationship with English identity although I was born in, and indeed have lived my entire life in England I wouldn't call myself English otherwise obviously I'd be in jail and uh <laughs> so I uh so I, I would probably call myself British on that basis or well my mum says I can't call myself Manx because I wasn't born there but I have a, so I have an ambiguous relationship to these islands but I was swept up in it I was like the thing is right I was just a bit like, oh, I don't really know what's going on, but they just seem like nice boys, don't they? That, that's essentially where I was. I was like, oh, they're just nice boys, aren't they? And, you know, I, I, I just actually moved to Manchester. My friend lived just around the corner from the Marcus Rashford mural where there was some uh, graffiti up in the wake of the aftermath of the cup, potentially with a racist motivation, I think. Um, and like people basically outpouring support, lots of lovely stuff there. And that felt really spontaneous and genuine and really lovely. And I think that's really nice. Like, um, you asked, can progressive English patriot? I, I think the only way of winning, it, it, if you think it is possible for a form of progressive English patriotism to exist, and obviously that, I'm not sure that's unambiguously true. And indeed, I know friends whose uh, I'll mention in a sec, but I know friends whose relationship with the English English team in particular and them playing is, is not good. But I, I think if you have any form of successful progressive English patriotism, it does have to like embed itself in, in, in institutions that exist. The issue with going up with the Tolpuddle Martyrs is, I mean, I know who the Tolpuddle Martyrs are. I suppose most people listening to this know who the Tolpuddle Martyrs are, but I'll be honest, not that many people know who the Tolpuddle Martyrs are. You, you can't just say that and in try to get through progressive patriotism and through that. You have to look at the institutions that actually exist and are important to people's lives. And if you conclude that they're all flawed and terrible, then you're probably doomed. But if to the extent you succeed at all, it's got to be through that. Now, I, I do want to say, I mean, I am white and British, possibly English-ish, so I, I haven't really had properly negative experiences with football. I mean, I'm, I'm a trans woman. My relationship with sport growing up was pretty weird, but, like, England itself doesn't have a kind of weird cachet for me, but I certainly know people who... Uh, I mean, I mean, it is true that as a, as a trans woman, I probably wouldn't go on the streets when there was a bunch of Larry football lads outside. I think that goes double for people who aren't white. But actually, it can be even more complicated than that. I have a friend who is uh, German, or rather, uh, I mean, no, I mean, I think she's British, but like her parents are German. Basically, she get bullied every time the English team were playing. And basically, whenever Germany's history came up, like, uh, like pretty horribly, it's a it was a real like anti German bullying was like a big feature of her um, of her experience of the football. And pretty much that's never going to go away. So it's for her, it's really hard to find a positive route through because that, it's just all tied up in that. 
And indeed, when we were playing Germany in this, the Euros, it was actually only after that match that I began to relax a bit myself and really get into it. Because actually, when we play Germany, uh, we get really ugly about it, don't we? I mean, we, we, we shout things like two world wars and one world cup as if those were comparable models. It, it, it gets lot completely, it becomes this horrible nationalistic we beat you thing rather than like yes at one time in history a victory was won over fascism that's good and indeed everyone involved thinks this is good but yeah it just gets tied into this stuff so and to put us not even including that is the stuff about the way in which both the english flag and indeed the union jack have been used at various times by explicitly like white nationalists or english nationalists or british nationalist organizations within this country and I think it's hard to, I, I don't think that means, oh, I'm condemning any use of it. That's clearly not what I'm doing. And it's nice to see people finding a positive relationship with these things. But I, I feel like I can't be like, oh yeah, everyone should just get behind the flag of the team. Because actually, no, for some people that's just not possible. And it would feel really weird for me to say that. I'm doing a new bit where like I answer everything with like, yes, but also no. So like my answer to this is like, yes, but also no. Here's the thing. Now that things have died down and we can sort of see how the, the parts fell into place at this moment, we might like, we might have to like rethink these things later, right? But like, as we know, these these things, the, the pieces fall into place right now. The key point about what happened with the English team during the Euros is that uh, while they were political and they were progressive, uh, none of the stances that they took were like radical like that indeed that was why like the lines from the Tory party seemed so fucking insane because you can't really like tell people that like what Marcus Rashford were like uh you know Harry Kane are doing by showing solidarity with victims of racism or like talking about the racism they experienced themselves are radical points that will bring about uh, big change. And I think that like when we get into like progressive patriotism, this is the thing you have to keep in mind. Can you do it? Can you wove in a story? Yes, you, you, that like plays with, with, the, with the story of like how Britain sees itself and a positive view of Britain from the left. You know, I'm crying thinking about the 2012 opening, uh, opening of the Olympics right now, et cetera, et cetera. There's a tear streaming down my cheek. It's really beautiful. Like, can you do that? Yes, you can absolutely do that. But you can only do that, you know, for for the easiest part. Once you can you once you can integrate those struggles into the struggles of like the wider history of the country, then mostly you have done, you know, 80% of the hard work. That, that like, you know, I sometimes like to do this when, when I'm talking to someone who's more conservative, as I say, you know, it means a lot to me that like I can be in Britain and live in Britain because like I was not comfortable being myself and having like a relationship with the woman in Brazil. So it means a lot to me that I can do this. So and that's part of what I like about Britain is it's, it's like it's that it allows me to be myself. And I know this is like a more like privileged position. I, know, I don't want to, you know, get into like the horrible treatment of trans people in the UK, but like, you know, it, it is substantially better for me to be a gay person in Britain than it was in Brazil. Yeah. I mean, I, I just want to say that as, as bad as it can be for trans people here, I, actually, I, I think it's sometimes it would be, you know, a lot of, a lot of murders of trans people that happen that are sort of recognized globally. I think I, I, I happen I, I, coincidentally enough to often be in Brazil. Like it's like, it's, I, I feel, yeah, I, I think I feel like sometimes it can be like, I, trans people here can be like, it's bad because it is bad, but it's definitely worse in other places. So I don't want you to feel like you have to apologize for saying that. I think, I think I, I, I feel similarly to you. Yeah, no, it's just, it's just a, like, I, that's the thing that I'm saying. Like, can you like create a story that like uses like progressive themes and it's woven into the national identity. Yeah, you can do it. In fact, I would say that like the SP has basically like hacked that formula and keeps like doing like getting away with the fact that they don't do anything in government. I'm sorry, I love you, Nicola. But the truth is, by the time you can do that, you're basically only doing like the easiest bit. You know, I'm sorry, like I'm sorry if you're like a Tory MP and you're listening to this for some reason, but like Black Lives Matter doing a you know a demonstration of like, I don't accept racism and I think racism is bad is not a radical position. 
the majority of British people think this is this is like an acceptable and like completely normal position to take. So if you're a mainstream political party and you want to take that route, yeah, I feel like you can do it. But if you are part of like a liberation movement, if you're like off the left and if you want to do things which push the struggle further, then yes, you might be able to do this like towards the end of the of like achieving your goals, but early on you will face a lot of resistance. And how we think about figures, you know, changes and adapts and, and so forth. And that's that's you're gonna have to like learn to change and adapt and and you're gonna have to like learn how to like manipulate that storyline in a way that people like it. So basically like if you are listening to this for like advice on how to change hearts and minds, which you shouldn't because I have never done anything useful in my life and I have never changed a single mind in my whole life. My advice would be, sure, use that sometimes for that. So use that in the, in the like last push, but like the truth is that like, you're going to have a lot of like difficulty getting that true to people in the, in the beginning. It's going to be like, it's going to be really hard to, to sell that line in the beginning. And that's going to have to be done through other ways. And you, you are going to have to do both parts of the work. You can't just hope that like one part of the work falls into your lap. You know, you can't just like have like a national team and it has a lot of like black players and then go, well, now we have equality for British minorities. Like that's not going to happen. You're going to have to put in the work of like actually telling that story. And I do think the English team did that well. Follow on from that. I mean, I, I agree with obviously everything Julia and line said. I think the question is a really tough one because the English national team did so well with progressive, uh, progressive patriotism because they're not party political. And you know, Marcus Rashford did so well with his free school meal campaign because he would he, he would say explicitly, "This isn't about politics. This is about feeding kids." And you know, if you get a Labour uh, politician to say that, it takes on an entirely different meaning. You know, like the the Labour politicians who mainly say this isn't about party politics, you know, are are ones explicitly pushing a brand of party politics that has been very, you know, electorally unsuccessful uh, in recent years. So I think on the on on the question, you know, um, the questioner said, would it be enough to have, you know, likable and strong personalities? I think, yeah, it, you know, I think this is something Labour just sort of and the left generally just sort of sort of brush away and have just sort of spent a decade saying. Oh no, it doesn't actually matter to have some someone who is likable and successful at what they do. When it's like, no, this is a pretty basic point. It would be really good to have someone likable and successful, you know. And that's how you know that is. You can sort of forge your own progressive patriotism. You don't need to, you know, you know, Keir Starmer saying, "Well, I associate myself with the progressive patriotism of the English team." You know, you realistically you want it to, <laughs> you know, that would be good. But realistically, you want it to be a sort of separate thing because that is a party political thing. No, and also you want it to be authentic, right? Yes, that's exactly you, it. You, you want people to believe when you say, I associate myself with the English uh, football team. Like, you want people to think, oh, he really does. And I, I do think that Keir Starmer likes football because otherwise he's putting on a really weird con for the past 58 years. I think it is important that it's sport in particular that taps into this stuff. Um, you know, so the kneeling. Right. I mean, that started in the United States, where you have Colin Kaepernick, who's a quarterback for, oh, I can't remember which team he was with, possibly Kansas City, uh, in the National Football League. This is American football. And, and that is pretty much the main sport in America now. It used to be baseball, most now it's American football. So it sort of has almost a kind of, baseball sort of kind of does, but almost the same point in the in the American psyche as like for football, soccer does in hours and and he basically kneels during the national anthem to protest racism and police brutality in america well instantly treated horrendously basically blacklisted from the league pretty I mean, yeah absolute hero in my in my view you know there's a reason he did that the reason that's important like, like the quarterback is like your main guy on the team and it's him doing the th- thing at the time when like because when i i quite enjoy it American football but one of the reasons I enjoy it is it's basically it's sort of fascinating because it's like America all its pomp and circumstance and he was taking this action it to, to not to like 
say he didn't like his country, but because to take a stand at that moment was really important, right? And and I think that and from there the symbology of this act uh, of taking a knee has, has grown. But it started with this man, and it started with sport actually. And I think there's a way in which sport, that mass participation, the way in which it sort of has a place in kind of uh, a national psyche and that kind of the way people lose themselves in it, uh, that that can tap into things and has a chance to do so in this. I mean, Colin Kaepernick wasn't turning to camera and saying, vote Democrat. You know, he was saying the police in America should kill less black people, essentially. I, I, there's a weird, it's a weird way in which sport kind of, I mean, you know, someone on Twitter this week was, you know, in the Ju- Emperor Justinian in the Byzantine Empire, basically almost got killed by the blues and the greens who were like fans of chariot races, like overrunning the city. Like if sports teams and sports fans like have long had a way of like tapping into politics that I think we don't always appreciate as sort of distinct from, you know, it's not like it, it is important that this is, we're talking about sports. And I mean, I'm, I, I come from the one who was definitely a nerd growing up, so I'm not sure I entirely understand sports, but I think I've begun to, I, I have over time begun to appreciate why sports itself is important. Uh, Mike, I'm actually interested because you kind of, from Cornwall, you're going to Wales, where like I, I get the impression like rugby is a bigger sport, right? So I don't know if you have any impression of like what it's like where there's a different game that's like the game. I, if, I, I don't know if that's true, but well, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, I, when you were talking about kind of feeling weird about like being like identifying with the Isle of Man and like being more British than English, it's, it's interesting in Cornwall as well because of my Cornish friends, we have like this discussion. There was a news item on BBC Spotlight, which is like the southwest bbc regional news and they were like interviewed cornish people and said oh yeah i'm not supporting the english team i don't feel english but then a lot of people who are i might i'm friends with cornish nats and you know really don't like england don't like british uh, don't identify with being british love the england national team always support england in the football i'm one of those people i've always supported england in the football and i've not really thought about it but I, th- I think in terms of Wales, it's definitely an interesting discussion because rugby is the national sport. And it's it's one of those things where the culture around rugby is different to the way it is in England. It's more of a working class sport. It's definitely more kind of egalitarian. It's accepted like across kind of class lines in a way. It, it just simply isn't in England, which I think is really interesting. But do you have the um, Union League division in the same? Cause there's a big, in my understanding in the UK, there's the, in England, sorry. Uh, there's a division between like union, which is a more upper class game, and league, which is a more working class game. Does that still exist in Wales, or are they sort of both? I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert. I should clarify this. I'm not really a rugby fan, to be quite honest with you. I mean, I watch it and I watch Six Nations and I get drunk and I enjoy it, but I'm not not an expert. But I'd, to my best of my understanding, league doesn't really exist in Wales all that much. There's a couple of uni sides that play, but mainly it's it's union, and basically everyone plays and watches union. I may be getting that completely wrong to Welsh rugby fans that are listening. I'm sorry, but the, that divide doesn't really exist in the same way. Welsh football is really interesting though, because I think it's, it's a kind of like, you know, opposite, not an opposite example, but it's another example where you've got an overtly political football, football side and you've got an overtly political, you know, um, footballing association in the Welsh FA in the fact that they, they're, they're pretty big Welsh nationalists and they're, they're pretty overtly, you know, against the kind of English FA and they, you know, they are, they are basically full with people who vote, who vote Plaid Cymru and probably pay Yes Cymru membership. But that's probably a discussion for another time. But it links into it on, on the basis of the fact that sport is, you know, has the capacity to, to be political in a lot of ways. And I think that it obviously, like you said, it, it is a huge kind of vector for people to have these kind of conversations, and it reflects our national conversations in a lot of what in in a lot of ways. I think that we can't get ahead of ourselves, though, in in this in some sense. And I think if the English English football team had taken the knee um, throughout the tournament and they crashed out in the round of sixteen, I don't think we would be having kind of like a big love in about how you know the Tories have basically been shown to be exposed by what's gone on. I think it is still limited to some extent by the, the fact that this team was ostensibly successful by English standards. That's not to say that Julia isn't right and that they did take what was fundamentally a popular position because basically most people in this country, you know, are supportive or soft supporters of Black Lives Matter and, you know, racial equality. But it is, you know, it is still limited by the fact that 
you know, your performances on the pitch do dictate how much airtime you're given, I guess. The other week, we we talked briefly about the triple lock and the changes that are set to come down on track. I haven't really kept up in terms of the change in the update in any change and any updates, but we kind of briefly touched on the idea that there is a generational aspect to this in the fact that a lot of young people, when you talk about changes to the triple lock or just pension provision generally, their eyes kind of glaze over and they think, well, either I'm not, this doesn't really concern me because this is something that affects me in like 45 years. And let's be blunt, the the the, the, sea, the sea levels are rising and I don't think there's much prospects of, you know, me reaching that point. So stuff them. And it's also alongside the idea that there is a kind of generational conflict in this country and that a lot of young people, I think not unfairly, look at the boomers and look at the kind of like Gen Xers who have got kind of like relatively high levels of of asset wealth compared to them in the fact that most most of them are probably owning property in at levels that they aren't and thinking, well, the boomers are basically at it good for you know the past 60 years and I've had nothing. The triple lot goes so be it you know i'm someone who disagrees with this position i think you know we should you know go after class war rather than generational war on all that but is 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 there any point to this kind of like nihilism around about like our future or is it just kind of like the road to ruin if you're a young person it's like well if you don't care about this like what is the point about caring about anything basically well i i think it sort of comes from the sort of you know the sort of cameronite austerity like thinking in terms of Oh, this is this is happening to people who are be- who are better off than me, you know. Th- this is uh, something that yeah, that won't affect me for ages, so we should just scrap it. And it's like, you know, we are all going to get old. The crisis isn't with the triple lock; it's with social care, and that's a crisis that's going on right now. We don't have to wait for it to turn into a catastrophe. And you know, I think it does a lot of it does. Co- it's for, there's a lot of sort of zero sum thinking from quite liberally minded people. I've seen on it and I don't I I honestly don't get it we've already seen the the sort of the kind of austerity that has been pushed to its electoral limit has already happened so if you cut the triple lock all you're going to do is you know wasn't that long ago that um, a lot of old people were in quite severe poverty and the, the triple lock does protect them against that as well as the winter fuel allowance which was so successful that you had people saying oh I don't get any benefit you know but don't you dare cut my winter fuel allowance and you know you can't really change people's attitudes on that, but that's a good thing that they are in that position where they feel like they are well protected, even if they don't quite understand it. I, I had a couple of thoughts. Um, and it happened to my dad was here earlier, visiting my new house, and we were chatting about this and that. And one of the things, you know, my dad, he was a teacher, uh, but he retired early for ill health. Uh, and nowadays, actually, he works at Tesco uh, just because he gets a, a, a smallish pension, like a decent pension, from uh his teaching but of course he retired earlier it's not as large as it could be uh and he'll get the state pension and actually his manx pension because he worked for a few years there when he turns 65 66 and actually he does financially all right i mean i don't want to just because his financial details on a podcast but you know um housewise he's all right but he doesn't earn that much and i want the triple lock to be in place when he gets there because he's my dad and i hope i'll be in a position i hope to be able to financially support him but it is nice to think that the state will provide for him because actually in his case, the state pension is really going to be the thing that unlocks his life and lets him stop working. And his, you know, I don't like that my dad has to work at Tesco to get by. I wish I made enough money that I could be like, don't do this, dad. I will just do this. But I I can't do that right now. Uh, And I am glad that eventually the state will be there to care for him because that is what it should be for. From the cradle to the grave we should all look out for each other so this feels quite personal right now and i think this is the thing right i, I think if surely if you come from a family where, where your parents are going to need the state pension are you going to be so blasé about getting rid of the triple i mean okay fine maybe you don't like your parents or you're estranged to them for good reasons that's understandable i don't want to dismiss that but actually i i am glad that it's there and i'm glad that the triple lock is in place because uh, no I, I i think it will make an appreciable difference to my parents like i think it is like a symptom of certain people on the left because when you when you mention like oh well surely you want like your parents to not have to worry about money when they're older like regardless of how you're doing financially as soon as you put it in terms like that it just like you go like oh yeah of course like of course the triple lock should stay like don't, don't be daft so a lot, a lot of people on the left especially like or like a certain type of online leftists basically get obsessed with 
the boomer caricatures as we know it. And don't get me wrong, like dunking on the boomer caricatures is is good and fun. But at the same time, it's like, you know, we know we know some boomers. We are related to some boomers. And it's like at the end of the day, you, you want them to be all right. And I think that as soon as it gets, you you know, you you kind of do away with the discourse around old people and you think of like the old people who are near and dear to you it becomes like well yeah of, of course of course we've got to support this yeah it's weird also about class position as well like my dad was a teacher which is kind of like i mean, not class job but like when he was on he worked for like 10 years as like a grave digger and like a waiter and hospitality you know it's these things are complicated right and i think sometimes people characterize in quite simplified ways so the other thing i wanted to say actually is about you mentioned nihilism no, there's never an excuse for lionism. It should be rejected in all its forms. I feel very strongly about this, uh, that there are things worth believing in in this world. Uh, and if we cease to believe in them, then I can't go on. So I, I shall not. I choose to believe in meaning. Uh, and so in that sense, I reject it. Yes, it's very easy to get very doomy about the way the world is. I can indulge in this sometimes. But but genuinely, don't do that. It's my recommendation. Just, just, just simply do not. It's not as simple as that. There's very easy to fall into these spirals and I, I get it I have a lot of compassion for it but, but really seriously don't do that I, I think there's a, there's a funny thing too because the thing about oh well I don't need to say well, it's not worth saving but the thing is I mean I'm kind of I, I work for a couple of years in a tech job so I have a bit of a pension from that and I, I work for a couple of years as a teacher so I have a bit of a pension from that and I, I might have a tech job in the future so I, I, I might so I might well be okay um there are people rich People like like kids who came from richer families, or have uh, families who like are really good on financial stuff. Who like come from family. Like, I didn't really get any financial understanding from my parents, so any stuff I've learned is sort of I've learned from like MoneySavingExpert.com or whatever. But I know enough to say that I probably should be saving from saving for pension as early as possible. But like there are people who come from families of who understand money and generally families of money who have decent jobs and have have received money from parents. And I, and when I say decent jobs, I mean like high-powered graduate jobs, that, 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 those careers. And they're putting that money aside. And the thing is, right, you can say, oh, it's not going to mean anything because we're all going to fall into the sea. But when the chips are down and the scarcity comes, everyone who has tried to shore up their class position will be very incentivized to band together and go, well, we've this number might be an imaginary number that we put down that isn't going to matter when we all fall into the sea. But we can't help but notice that we all have higher imaginary numbers than you and therefore we're going to work together to so you can't be like oh it won't matter well you actually except the people who have saved more i'm not saying oh pull up your bootstraps and save more i'm just saying that it does definitely matter because you know the people who absolutely do know about pensions it's rich people they absolutely understand all the different ways things you have to do to carry wealth forward and they're not forgetting and that that is a thing that it's one of those things where it is easier to hold on to wealth and to save wealth if you already have it. And so we do not give into nihilism because you actually let those people, I think, win. I don't think the solution is to oh, just carefully save your pension and it'll all work out. I think we need more transformational social change. We need to fix things like social care. We need to have a welfare state again. We need to do a lot more to meet the profound challenges, not just to this country, but, but to like, not just to our way of life, but to the way of life of all of humanity upon this planet, which we have wrecked over the next century, it will be very hard. I do not know the world into which we live, but I know that we live together in it. So let's prepare to do that. And if part of that is making sure that for as long as we can, we can give older people a decent quality of life as long as we can, we should do that. Because from the very time we were like, you know, across in the entirety of human history, it has been broadly been a good thing that we care for those members of our community who can't care for themselves. We are social animals and that is one of the things we're really good at. So let's just not stop that just because somebody's like read too many Duma memes on Twitter. I just had one tiny point to add on to what Lyne said is that um, I think what gets lost in the triple lock sort of discourse is that Britain still has one of the least generous pension programs in Europe, you know, scrapping the triple lock is ludicrous. It, they should, the pensions, uh, should, uh, pension system should be expanded. I think we should scrap the triple lock, but only for the lady who wrote that she hated her bisexual daughter on the Telegraph. I think she deserves it. <laughs> this is your yes, but also no. <laughs> this is how we square the circle. So it's like, you know, pension contributions to people who don't have columns in horrible right-wing newspapers. Yeah, I'm a Blairite, so I'm pro uh, means testing. So like I, I, my proposal is that like, if you ever wrote anything on the Telegraph, 
then you should be taxed 100%. Sensible policies for a moderately, a moderate and stable fiscal Britain. Well, can we have a special Giles Curran tax as well? Just exactly. Ever like that's what I'm, th- listen, I, I am not like, unlike you guys, I'm not some pie in the sky leftist. My point is that if you ever wrote anything in the Telegraph, then you're going to be taxed 100%. Everybody else gets like a, a generous welfare system, except people right on the telegram and of course you know we, we have to pay for these things we can't just print money famously there is no magic money trick. you hear that well yeah. we can't just print money we've tried i did gcse history i know this i, I own a monopoly set <laughs> the funniest argument i heard of it um was that but well, we're all getting older so we should scrap the triple lock you know we're all going to live longer i mean so we scrap the triple lock it's like yes but we are all going to be old we're not going to or just live forever in our 30s, you know, in our 20s. Oh, well, actually, I, I was reading something earlier. To this. Like, there, there is a non-zero but possible chance that we might accidentally solve aging in the next few decades. And that will have, like, profound sociological consequences that literally are unplanable for and will fundamentally reshape the nature of humanity. But given it's an outside chance and we can't really predict what will happen, I don't really think we should be planning on that basis. I mean, it's true that, like, in general, we expect ages to go up. Um, like like lifespans to go up now it, it may be but on the other hand if there's a giant climate crisis not sure you can always guarantee that will be the case so yeah we'll see how we go so it's a bit yeah it feels a bit spurious really i'm just saying i'm against solving aging because if this happens we're gonna endanger milfs and like that's against that's against my line <laughs> right okay i mean i don't I don't really know how to respond to that. <laughs> there is no response to that. <laughs> so moving on from pensions and obviously, you know, the the really interesting discourses that surround it on so many different levels. We've also got uh, a question in a final question for today, which is kind of broad. You can take this in any direction, I guess. Is which policy areas uh, would the pod like Labour to focus on more to forge a more distinctive image? So there's a few issues I have, you know, with the question mainly that. Labour's current image problem is due to a shortage of policy, policy when in fact the reverse is true. I mean, um, how many policies have we seen that were announced once, never spoken of again? We had, you know, who remembers British recovery bonds? You remember that? Said one day, never said again. Six, six days ago, Labour launched a, a campaign called the Safer Communities Campaign. And two days ago, Labour launched a new campaign called the New Deal for Working People campaign. Now, I'm not an expert in campaigns, but I, I think unless they're incredibly successful, it might be worth waiting more than four days to launch a new one. But, you know, to answer the, the question, you know, seriously, the one policy Labour should have campaigned on throughout the whole of the pandemic and didn't and still aren't doing is sick pay, raising it and expanding it, not just paying it, not just, you know, making sure that everyone who is entitled to it, because that's not a lot of people, that's not enough people. Get it, uh, get so it. Actually, in fairness, they have said stuff on that exactly today. I oh, exactly. they finally pulled the finger. I, I, I don't, I don't, I, maybe that's the new future of work stuff. But Rayner has, I think, is, I think this might be some reheated and rehashed policies, but they part of her future they, of work. No, they, stuff. They've said, they've said it a lot of times. It's been very confused. The, the last line was pay sick pay. Before that, I remember Annalise Dodd saying we should raise and expand it. Well, but it well, was, so, it was well, always like the fourth bullet point down. The the thing they're clear on is actually that they want to basically give you sick pay from day one of a job, which is, I think, a big. I mean, it's not. Yeah, but that's that's not. You know, that's not raising and expanding it either, though. You know that, and that's the thing for a pandemic. That is the what they should have gotten that. At least the debate changed on it. Not, you know, obviously they're in opposition. They can't get the government to do what they say. But it should have been their long-term economic plan. Like David Cameron should have been the thing we're all sick of hearing. See, this argument is like it's like so interesting because this argument is part of the problem. They actually did do it. Labour has like the unenviable position where it has a lot of policies, and like I follow those policies. Most of them are pretty good, basic rice and beans stuff. Uh, rice and beans, bread and butter. Sorry, they're not well. Like they they don't they're they're in design as anything. Like they're not part of like a storyline. Because they're like, so basically the impression that you get is that you throw things at the wall and hope they stick, right? You just go, right, uh, sick pay. Then three days later, you talk about something else, like buy British, and then you talk about something else. The impression that people get is that like, you're not saying anything. You're supposed to be sick of hearing them saying this. You're supposed to be like, oh, Keir Starmer, he only has one policy in sick pay. 
it wouldn't be true, but like you want this to be your thing. So like if the thing is going to be because Deborah Matson thinks that like the this is my answer to this question, which is yes, but also no, even though it's not a yes or no question. It's not that there is like one set of policies that you have to like do to have a like, it's like you have to know like what you want. If what Deborah Madison wants is like the, the Superman workers or whatever the fuck it is that she thinks will win the red wall back, that's fine. But like, then you do need, you do need to like repeat that thing and focus on that thing several several times oh it's going to be about workers it's a party of workers right so like everything we do is going to be about the joe biden thing good union jobs that's great just steal the line wholesale but you do need to have that line you do it's, it has to be like get brexit done where like in the end you're you're going insane thinking okay i've heard this a hundred times so i i had misread the question and i was about to say something funny but i it doesn't make sense, but it's an interesting misreading, right? And that you're talking about what policy should Labour focus on in opposition to forge a more distinctive image. Uh, that's a good question. The question I had read, or I just thought about answering it now, because we think, is what should we do when we get into office? When we get into office, which will happen in the future uh, at some point. I think there's necessarily two different things in some sense, but it's interesting how we always talk about what opposition will be like, but not really about like what government will be like. And I don't know if that's a more effective way of talking about things, but certainly like maybe that's maybe we that's a thing that maybe you should start talking about things that way. So like I mean fundamentally, I, I actually would I and you're seeing elements of this. I like uh Starmer's line about a society with time to care or whatever. I mean it's dangerous the Ed Miliband, but that is kind of what I want. I think voters are broadly aware, I, I think by now austerity has gone on long enough. And hasn't been sufficiently kind of rolled back in in any areas that matter that we really don't have. And to be fair, didn't really have under the latter half of New Labour, especially, I have to say, although the austerity really brought a number in a society which actually cares about people. I mean, the thing that I really care about, because I got a bunch of friends who are disabled, is like the way the DWP treats pretty much anyone, but especially disabled people, which is inhumane and we should abolish the DWP. And that's not like an ironic uh view that I have. I, I think we should. Uh, if we got into office, we should. Uh, I would abolish the Home Office, the Health Department of Health, and the DDWP, and then just split them up. I possibly, I mean, Health and Social Security used to be in, in similar place. You know, I don't know what I would do. I just think Health and Social Care is a weird thing that shouldn't be a, like. We should have like a like Social Care could really do with being linked into the functions of the DDWP, and at some point, someone should teach some of those people what it means to like treat other people with dignity. I think I like that when Labour talks about that. I, I think Labour can make a convincing case that it is a more humane party than the Tories. I think voters kind of instinctively know this. Like, they vote for the Tories. But I don't really think, maybe I'm wrong on this, that people think of the Tories as more compassionate, that they care about people more. So Labour has to convince people that caring about people is possible and necessary and it's a thing we can do better. I'm not just saying that because I like it. I actually just think it is like a unique selling point. You're not just selling it on competency. You're saying, and like to do some of that, by the way, you have to not seem like backstabbing dickheads literally all of the time. It's very hard for the Labour Party. But if you could just try that for a, li a, li a little bit, a little bit, uh, that'd be really good. And it, it's a lot easier to convince people that you, you might actually care about other humans. Um, but I think it is a thing that we could maybe do. And and, and sort of similarly, it's that's actually, by the way, why I in the grand tradition of the social review would abolish the home office because that's another government department i think has cruelty baked into it not incompetence and there are other lots of it's our government that have been completely hollowed out by austerity but just the way the home office acts institutionally by the way not just i mean we have a particularly bad home secretary right now but just the way it acts towards people who come into this country is 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 cruel it comes from the top but it's institutional and it's awful uh, and we should not do that and i think we should have less cruel government in this country controversial view i know and for me that's a real emotive point that labor can make, kind of push on because i don't really believe people think the tories kind of are it's a, a little bit like i think labor will always struggle with people going ah oh, but they'll spend everything won't they i think instinctively at people's core people are never really going to believe that the tories 
care about you. And if we can get people to care that they don't care, then that's an, that's a good thing. Go into the question of how should Labour forge a more distinctive image? So at the very start of the pandemic, you had a lot of Labour employees explicitly saying, join a union to protect yourself at work. And this was the first time I remember seeing any Labour MP when the party was governed by the left or the right, you know, the leadership of the party saying this. And you find it a bit weird considering it's a party of trade unions. And I think that is honestly a big part of what Labour's problem is. They, they, they don't want to explain what Labourism is. They just want to be this sort of Bonnie Prince Charlie figure waiting to be brought back from exile who will, who will, give, who will bestow Labourism upon the people if only those people would know that it was good for I, I will say though I will try to get, like give this person a straightforward answer my imagined voter the person that I think the Labour Party should be targeting not a joke this is like it's like mo- working mothers right so like we could call these type of voters <laughs> mothers no. I would like no no to vote no for me. no but like seriously it's like working mothers so like Here's my package, which is like, I would mark it as a five, uh, five pledges thing. You know what I mean? Big offers on uh, education, big offers on care, you know, childcare and care because uh, working mothers often have, like women often have to take care of their, uh, of the elders of the family, you know, have like a green focus there because like that's that's like one of the issues that is constantly on the minds of voters but also on the minds of women more specifically i think there's a slight gender bias in, in there and also like get tough on cybercrime because like your grand doesn't deserve to like get scammed every week and and that's it so like if you have that sort of like flavor because you have a type of voter in mind you can create things around it so that that would be my line it would be like working mothers and then creating a set of like you have to start from that there working mothers creating a set of policies which would please working mothers that would make them more that would make the party starting to like become more appealing from that image right so like a party that cares for you and your family that would be sort of like the tagline i'll go for and you know go the full the full rusev in uh 2014 have like kier starmer cooking pasta and talking to always saying like yeah like she did this on on, like this great like television ad uh doma rusev former president of brazil she did this television ad where she was cooking pasta and talking, like she was talking to a, a woman friend. So like, it would be like your Starmer cooking pasta and saying like, I want to thank, you know, the lovely women and men who like uh, work so much for our NHS. That's for yourself. Like that, that works because it's a certain type of like image of the party that you build things from. So like, okay, if Deborah Madison thinks that like the, the thing that gets, that you can build from our, you know, key workers okay build things from there have your have your policies from there but you know don't just keep throwing things at the wall and see which demographic is going to pick them up because the answer is not no one because nobody likes politics and that's the thing that like i feel like labor people don't get nobody likes this thing that we're involved in nobody like they think it's weird and off-putting and all the constant bickering and discussion and arguments you're having about your fucking soul, the state of your soul, is annoying. They don't like that. Yeah, I mean, in fairness, the whole caring for you and your family thing is sort of not non-resonant with what I was saying. Although I think Kieran is right that it's good to like relate that to like the politics of like laborism in some sense, uh, or like you know what, what the role of union might have in that kind of story. So I, I definitely agree, and I think you can basically take your pick of vibes to focus on or like target voters so you can be like so you can talk about the environment and you can talk about you know like good green jobs sort of thing forever good unionized green jobs or you can talk about working mums or you can talk about you know basically you can take your pick of of whatever area of the british voting public you need to win back and as long as you just hammer it i think that is you've got a kind of at least a coherent political strategy or you've got at least coherent communications about like this is what we're offering to people. And I think the problem is at the minute is partly you don't have, you know, strategic thinkers in the Labour's of- Labour Party office. You have people will- who are looking and scanning horizons and thinking like, what are we looking, you know, what is the story 
that we want to finish on polling day 2023 sort of thing what what is the you know what is the final chapter that we have written for voters at that point no one is you know willing to get that and it's, it's part of the problem is you know obviously you've got the rotating door at lotto so they're probably just starting to tell that story now and i think you know the stuff around like hero workers and stuff is is so thick of it it's it's incredibly cringe but for me i always think it's in- incredibly horrible blairite terms and it's because i probably when i was finishing my degree i um what i did was i put the um the war room on in the background which is a film about uh, the 1992 U.S. presidential election, and it kind of drove me insane. But I think James Carville, who was like Democratic grandee, he had this he had this bit in it when he was like talking about like the vibe you had to like you know the the bruise that he wanted to hit with with um, George Bush Senior. He's like he just stinks of yesterday. When I look at him, I think of an out of date calendar. And I, and and the Democratic Party at the time was seizing the future. Now that was like certain left politics in a whole of that certain over of that point in history was like we're the guys who own tomorrow. Ain't that cool? But I think you know that is the kind of like cohering narrative that that draws like the disparate plot threads is like environment it's, it's a thing about the future yeah you know you know young uh, working mums it's a thing about the future it's about your kids future education it's about the future and i think if the labor party kind of stops doing punditry because that's what we do all the time it's just like it's like the response to the um hartlepool by election was like was you know rather than saying like oh we had some good wins in these areas it was like gesticulating about how awful we are and why we're awful and i just think if we're actually just willing to do politics more and rather complain about how crap we are then that would be a good thing but i think you know for for me i think there isn't necessarily a wrong answer but for me i think it's the environment is is the through line you know that i think we should own what you're saying is you should take more advice from dan hodges and bang on more about clement attlee that's my understanding that is exactly right that is completely right right. (laughs) (laughs) keir starmer hire me i do think i was gonna make a sarcastic point something Joey was saying before which I've not remembered but actually there is a real point here I was like oh well, if only there was some sort of online forum where you could talk to mums on the net some sort of like a mums net and the thing is right okay but no, the, the funny thing is, I mean like mums net nowadays is like a horrible transphobic hellhole but it's, it's interesting how I remember like Gordon Brown doing his like favorite biscuit like interview there um if you want to talk to working mums now, who are probably not using like an internet forum, I have to say, I, I they must be like, a, like, uh, like I can't really believe that like 20 something mums use an internet forum, but do they still do the mums at rounds? Well, they should not. But I think there is a question, right? About like, okay, but where do you talk to people? Because not on Twitter. I, I can't really believe that if you're a working mum, you're reading Twitter all the time because like you surely we would not have time for like the very busy life you have and so like i mean i'm not a working mum hope to be one day but i'm not at the moment i think there's an open question actually about like how you communicate with your demographics that i don't it doesn't really i mean of course i don't really see it necessarily because it's not like i'm not seeing facebook is it facebook ads or whatever but like what is the party doing to actually get if you okay if we should target certain demographics or we should have a certain narrative we should shape well where should we shape them and it's not clear to me what the answer to that is because is it social it's social media, I think? But the, the, the landscape is very different from where it was even like five, six years ago. I mean, very famously, you know, one of the reasons Labour did particularly well in 2017 was probably because the Facebook algorithm at the time really did very well for them with like viral sharing of links from left-wing sites. And now and then they should then Facebook changed that and suddenly that didn't work anymore. So okay, this isn't a podcast about Labour's media strategy, it's about policy, but there is a question I, we've been saying, well, Labour has tons of policy. It announces it all the time. I think some degrees the campaigns are often basically, this is what's in the grid this week. But is it is it get penetrating through? I mean, I I know someone who's like, oh, Labour don't have any policies at the moment. This is the thing I constantly hear from my like, left wing, but not in the party friends. I'm like, it really does. Though. It has a ton of policies, not just not just the old ones it hasn't thrown away, but like new ones or ones it's reaffirming. It, it, it's, it's runoff over with policies, but clearly they're not penetrating. So I think there's a question about how you actually get through to those groups. And it's a shame, actually, that you have things like Mumsnet becoming what it is, or, or indeed, like, there's some weird stuff about kind of like wellness groups and whatever, which are another place that if you're like a uh, a young mum, that kind of profile, you might meet people. But those have been like havens of like COVID misinformation and things. Um, so like, there's it's 
those spaces exist online, but often they can go quite odd in some ways. There's certainly not places that parties parties do like communications, but it seems to me. I mean, like the Labour Party can't like message you on WhatsApp and get you chatting about stuff. So how how do you get your message out to people? Yeah, but this is like the, the Tory Party got it right. Like like I feel like we don't talk about this enough. If you watch like the videos from the 20, 2019 like elections. There, there were like genuinely like these little videos, which like I feel like none of us caught because we are all repulsed and triggered by Boris Johnson. But there was these little videos where he was doing like the Vogue interview, which was like 73 class. He wasn't at Vogue, but like they did like a style like that. So like you could definitely like do certain style marketing that would get certain stuff. We're getting off track for the question, but like my point is, again, if you are going to do that for those demographics, like you said, you you do need to like you 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 do need to know which demographic you're targeting, so then you know where they are because you you do have people that can do this. Listen, guys, every working mom that we can, if you guys can meet me at a certain location. And that brings us to the end of another episode of the Social Review Podcast. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please feel free to share it on the social media platform of your choice. It helps the show out massively. And if you have any questions you'd like to ask us, you can at us on Twitter at SockReviewPod, email us SockReviewPod at gmail.com, or leave a response to the Google form that you can find on our Twitter. Our music is The Dance by Kyle Cox, licensed under Creative Commons. Thank you for listening and have a fantastic rest of the day.